I wonder what you would pray if you rejoined your friends after spending some time in jail because you had been sharing the gospel. And I don't mean you were going back and forth to jail, leading a jail ministry, preaching the gospel. Like on Monday nights or something. I mean you were arrested and are the inmate because you were speaking boldly about Christ. What would you rejoin your Christian friends and call out to the Lord for? What would you pray about when you were released and reunited? I wonder if a particular psalm would be comforting and helpful. What truths would be important to hold to and remind yourself about and to declare together? Let me tell you what Peter and John did. They were arrested in Acts 4 for preaching Christ. When they were released and they went home to their friends, here's what we read in Acts 4.24. They told the disciples and apostles that were present what had happened. And the text says, when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. And they said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed one. For truly, they said in this city, there were gathered against your holy servant Jesus, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. I'll tell you what Peter and John did when they came home from prison. They gathered together and they prayed from Psalm 2. They prayed from this psalm because it proclaims the Messiah's rule And a warning to all the enemies of Yahweh. They were living in the days when God had established His Son as the Redeemer of sinners. For Christ had died on the cross, risen from the dead, and ascended in glory with all authority and power over heaven and earth. When Pilate and the Jewish leaders and the governing authorities came against Christ, they were living out the language of Psalm 2. The passion accounts... And Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are telling you the living out of Psalm 2 in the life of Jesus and those hostile to Him. When the persecutors came against the apostles in the book of Acts, arresting them and punishing them and threatening them, they were living out the language of Psalm 2. Because to come against the people of God is to come against Christ. Paul himself learned this before he was converted. Named Saul of Tarsus, he was traveling on a road to Damascus in Acts 9, having been zealously involved in the persecution of Christians. And Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Psalm 2 should comfort God's people and terrify the wicked. It is a psalm that points to Christ. Though there's no authorship claim in the psalm itself, Acts 4 did have a phrase. Did you catch it? It identified David as the author. The apostle prayed in Acts 4, saying, Through the mouth of our father David, your servant, God said. The understanding of the apostles was that David authored Psalm 2, 
So we should understand it that way also. And I mentioned last week Psalms 1 and 2 go together as the introduction to the whole book of Psalms. A pair of Psalms. Think of them together as a gateway leading into the book. Like mighty pillars, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, through which you pass to get to Psalm 3 and beyond. The opening pair of Psalms are interpretive guides for us. How would we notice ways Psalms 1 and 2 go together? The first thing to notice is that the opening line of Psalm 1 and the last line of Psalm 2 are about blessing. We can see a frame of a promise that someone is blessed. It says in chapter 1-1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Chapter 2-12, the end of our, our chapter this morning, Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. The rest of Psalms 1 and 2 actually unfold within a frame, the beginning of the first psalm and the end of the second psalm about blessing. Second, both psalms end with a warning. A warning that the wicked will perish. And that's the language used in both. In Psalm 1-6, the way of the wicked will perish. In chapter 2-12, the wicked will perish in the way. Both psalms, thirdly, have a theme of mockery. In chapter 1-1, there are wicked who sit as scoffers on the earth. And in chapter 2-4, the Lord sits in the heavens and laughs. Fourthly, the word for meditation appears in both psalms. It's not translated meditate in the second psalm, but here's how it works. In chapter 1, verse 2, the blessed man meditates day and night on the word of the Lord. In chapter 2, verse 1, the people's plot or meditate on emptiness. They plot in vain. It's the language of coming together to think about something. And the blessed man's thoughts are on the word of God. And the raging nations gather to meditate on vanity. Plots in vain. Fifthly, both psalms talk about the result for the righteous. In chapter 1, 5 to 6, the righteous will stand before God, for he knows their way. In chapter 2, 12, the righteous have taken refuge from the judgment of God. And lastly, both psalms talk about a figure who is fruitful and triumphant. In chapter 1, 3, the figure is the blessed man. Who prospers in whatever he does. Like a tree planted by streams of water. In chapter 2, 8 and 9. The figure is the king of Israel. He succeeds over the nations. His reign is fruitful to the ends of the earth. We might say that ultimately. The blessed man in Psalm 1. Is the anointed one of Psalm 2. These are six ways. In which Psalms 1 and 2 are connected. And they guide the interpreter. For everything that follows. We are being invited to delight in the words of God. Psalm 1 draws us in. Not just for the book of Psalms, but for all of the word of God on which the psalmist meditates. We are also being invited to keep an eye out for the king who's been promised. That here in chapter 2, 1 and 2 form a pair of lenses to read the rest of the psalms. We are called to delight in God's words and find refuge in God's king. This is what Psalms 1 and 2 are summoning us in response to do. The raging nations are spoken about in chapter 2, 1 to 3. Opening question. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? It's a rhetorical question. 
And that's because what's being observed is the absolute futility of what these nations and peoples have decided to do. The peoples and nations are parallel. They're conspiring. These in leadership, these governing authorities are doing things though for nothing. They rage, they plot, but what's the outcome? Vanity. They're not successful. They don't achieve their end. It's not like they look back in retrospect and said, this went the way we thought. No, they rage and they plot, but in vain. One writer says the conspiracy is of restless motion. They're raging, but also empty murmuring because they're plotting in emptiness. When they're, what are they conspiring against, though? Verse 2 helps us notice the object, the target of their conspiracy. The kings of the earth and the rulers of verse 2 are the same as the nations and peoples of verse 1. These kings, these rulers are gathering together, taking counsel from one another, the counsel of the wicked, we might say, and they are coming against the Lord and against his anointed. The anointed word here, this word is the word Messiah. You could translate this, they have come against the Lord and against his Messiah. It's against the king. Messiah in the Old Testament translated Christ in the New Testament. When we speak of Jesus as the Christ, we are saying he is the promised king the Old Testament held out hope for. They are gathering together against the Lord and against his Messiah. And what have they said? Well, in their arrogance, which is summarized in verse 3, here's the gist of what they want. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. What is it that they want? These plotting, conspiring figures want to be free from the authority of God. They want to reject his ways and wisdom. They don't want to walk according to the words of God. They want to do what is right in their own eyes. To them, submission to Yahweh feels like cords and bonds in their way. The blessed man delights in God's words. Not these people in Psalm 2, 1-2. When they think about divine instruction and wisdom, they think about chains that constrict and hold them back. They think of freedom as being freedom from God's rule. Let's cast off the bonds and cords. Let's burst them and cast them away from us. They have defined freedom as being free from God's authority. But to oppose the Lord is not freedom. Opposing the Lord is to succumb in your mind and heart to the enslavement of sin. The one who hopes in God knows that freedom is not found through opposing the Lord. We turn to the Lord that He might free us from the bondage of our sin. That we might live in freedom for the glory of God. The believer in Jesus does not think of the words of God as shackles and cords. Cords that inhibit and restrict imprison or demean we think of according to the lenses of scripture we look at our lives as believers and we understand that Christ has set us free in Christ we leave the prison of our iniquity and the shackles of our darkness so that we might love the Lord in the freedom of his grace you know what the believer says the believer says and sings let thy goodness like a fetter Bind my wandering heart to thee. 
Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Here's my heart, O take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. This is what the believer says eagerly. These in chapter 2, 1 to 3, are people who are opposing the Lord. And the idea of following the Lord looks like prison to them. It feels like shackles in their minds. Because they have a wrong view of sin and a wrong view of the wisdom and goodness of God. What's the Lord's response? Well, there's a scene shift in chapter 2-4. If we've seen these earthly plotters, what's happening in chapter 2-4 is a shift to heaven. How is heaven responding to the earthly plots and conspiracy? Chapter 2-4-6, here's the heavenly response. The one who sits in the heavens laughs. And the Lord holds them in derision. One writer puts it this way, scoffers sit in their seats in chapter 1 of Psalms, concocting strategies to throw off the Creator's yoke in chapter 2. Yahweh is enthroned in the heavens, impervious to attack, laughing over those who think so little of Him. Now what would you expect the God of heaven to do? Tremble before the rebels? That is not what happens. God is not one who trembles. He doesn't shake in the heavens. He causes the earth to shake. He doesn't tremble. He causes the wicked to tremble. Consider the vantage point in verse 4. The rebels are conspiring together on earth. God sits in the heavens. He reigns and he laughs. This means that the words and ways of the wicked leaders are absolute folly to the Lord. Absolute absurdity to the Lord. They think so highly of their plans. They feel so clever about all their strategies. But it's laughable. It's absurd in the worst way. Their their futile hostility is ridiculous. The Lord regards them accurately with how vain their plans really are. They are no threat to God. No threat to His rule. No threat to His plans or promises. No threat to the future of God's people. Mighty leaders have come and gone in their opposition to the Lord. Ask Pharaoh of Exodus how it turned out. Or Haman of the book of Esther. Or Herod the Great in the Gospel of Matthew. The Lord in the heavens laughs at their folly and absurdity. It tells us in verses 5 and 6, Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my King on Zion, my holy hill. In verse 5, speaking to them in wrath and terrifying them. They are not yet afraid, but they should be. They do not tremble, but He shall terrify them. They will be spoken to in the righteous wrath of God. In His holy fury, they will come to know the words and ways of God. The rebels against Yahweh face the vanity of their plans, but now also the righteous judgment of their Creator. They have defied Him. And He will speak to them now in His righteous indignation. They are arrogant and self-exalting. God shall terrify them in His fury. And what He terrifies them with is news. Verse 6, the news is, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God has established His king. It's the imagery of installation. I have set my king on Zion. This is the exaltation of the appointed king over against all the kings and rulers of the earth. Zion is an Old Testament word. It stands for Jerusalem initially. 
Jerusalem was located on an elevated region. Sometimes this would be called Mount Zion. This holy hill or this area where God's king would rule took on a meaning beyond the earthly city. It pointed toward the heavenly reality like all Old Testament shadows and types do. They pointed toward the heavenly reality of God's new Jerusalem. And his reign and power and exalted place of total sovereignty. Verse 6 is not about a mere earthly installation of a king with limited jurisdiction in some city. Verse 6 is about God installing his promised king as ruler over all. And it should terrify all the other rulers because he has jurisdiction over them. They are in God's world and they are defying him. They should tremble before God's installed king and not oppose him. He is the anointed one in verse 2. Same figure, right? Verse 2, the anointed one in verse 2 is the king in verse 6. This is the Messiah. This is the Christ. Verses 7 through 9 talk about the reigning king. And when we listen to the language of verses 7 and 9, we're not talking about another figure here. We're still talking about the king. But here's what we find. The Messiah, the anointed one in verse 2, is the installed king of verse 6 and the son of God by his own declaration. Listen in verses 7 through 9. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The reigning son is saying, let me tell you what was declared over me. And so the son of God, in the hearing of not just the reader, but that all the nations might know, what has God declared about his son? The son says, he said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you and ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage. The nation should therefore Therefore, tremble because they've gathered together to plot against the anointed one, whereas the rule over the nations will be what the son receives. This is not good news for the wicked unless they repent. The decree means in verse seven, a divine declaration or plan that is being made known. Here is what God has determined or declared. And he has said to his son today. You are, you are my son today, I have begotten you. Now, I want to put together uh, some background here with verse 7. There is a statement that David heard in 2 Samuel 7 verses 12 through 14. David learned that from his line would come a king, a son of David. Here's the language. I will raise up offspring after you, God said to him, who shall come from your body. I'll establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, and I will be to him a father, and he to be, uh, shall be to me a son. Father and son language there. God's saying about the future king. We are being prepared in the Old Testament for the astounding truth that the New Testament most clearly proclaims. That the future son of David would be the very son of God. The anointed one, the Christ. No wonder the nation should tremble. No wonder when they gather against the anointed one, they plot in vain. The son of David is the son of God. You are my son, God says. 
So God has told David in 2 Samuel that a future king would come. And if Acts 4 is rightly helping us see the authorship of this psalm, which it is, then David in Psalm 2 is telling us what's true for the son to come. The greater David, the Messiah, the Christ. Sonship is an important truth. And Christ will be a son in a way that even Israel wasn't the son of God. The Israelites were told in Exodus 4 that they were like a collective son of God. But Christ, the future king, he would be a son in a way that not even Israel was a son of God. Think about what the father says about his son during the ministry of Jesus. And let's start at the launching of the ministry of Jesus with these words at the baptism. In the baptism of Jesus in Matthew 3.17, a voice from heaven said, This is my son, my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. In other words, in Psalm 2, if the father would say of the son, you are my son, it is declared at the baptism of Jesus a revelation of this eternal sonship. In Matthew 17, at the Mount of Transfiguration, the Father says, This is my beloved Son, in Matthew 17, 5, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. When you get out of the Gospels and you see in the book of Hebrews, the opening of the letter in chapter 1, 5, the writer says, To which of the angels did God ever say, You are my Son, today I have begotten you? No angel ever. No angel ever heard those words. You know who has always been the Son and the begotten of the Father and the one whose revelation of sonship would would take place in baptism and ministry and all the rest in the Gospels? It's only the Son of God, the Lord Jesus. The Apostle Paul preaches this way. In Acts 13, Paul says, We bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, He fulfilled to us, His children, by raising Jesus as it's written in the second psalm, Paul says. And as it is written in the second psalm, Paul quotes, You are my son, today I have begotten you. In other words, the revelation of the sonship of Jesus Christ as the son of the heavenly father is made clear in such revelation in the baptism and ministry of Jesus, but not just there. The crucifixion of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. Paul ties it to the resurrection in Acts 13. He raised Jesus up as it's written in the second psalm, Paul says. Now, we've thought about the sonship of Christ, the future king from Psalm 2. What else does God say to his son? Ask of me. I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. These words are a summons, a call to ask. And how wide is the scope of the king's rule? The nations will be your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. It is a picture of dominion. But not small dominion. Not like halfway 50% dominion, but rather the nations are the heritage of the future king and the ends of the earth, his possession. This is a global rule by the son of David, son of God. That's why the devil's temptation of the Lord Jesus in Matthew 4 was so ridiculous. Because the devil says to Jesus in Matthew 4, after taking him to a high mountain and showing him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, he says, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Oh, hold on a second. That's completely blasphemous words from the evil one. And we would expect nothing less from him. Calling the son of God to worship him, holding out some promise that the kingdoms belong to him and would belong then to Jesus. Psalm 2, 
disagrees. Psalm 2.8 reports that the nations are under the sovereignty of God. And that God says, ask of me and the nations shall be yours. It will not be Satan who gives the nations to the Son. The Son is the heir of the nations by divine decree. What an absurd temptation. As if Christ doesn't know the word of God and who he is in Matthew 4. The God of heaven says to his son in Psalm 2.9, You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. These words to the future king continue here. And the king is reporting them to you. He says, I will tell you the decree that was given. Here's what was said. And in verse 9, he's still reporting. It's as if we're reading then the words of Christ that may as well be written in red. Here, here is what the son of God says has been given to me and said. You shall break these nations with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. A rod is a picture of judgment here. And I think we get that because rod in the first line is connected with the verb break. You shall break them with a rod. And then in the second line, dashing them in pieces like a potter's vessel is this picture of being overcome by this symbol of authority. This word rod can be translated the same idea as a king's scepter. In fact, this is the same word in Numbers 24, 17, where Balaam says to King Balak, I see him, but not now, and I behold him, but not near. A star, a scepter shall come out of Israel. It is this. And in Numbers 24, Balaam was beholding the truth of the coming king. It is this scepter that comforts the believer. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You get to Psalm 23, 4. Your rod and your staff, they do not terrify me. Your rod comforts me. And you prepare a table before my enemies. This rod, which is a warning and a symbol of judgment because of his sovereign authority over the wicked, is a symbol of comfort and joy for the believer whose refuge is the only God of heaven and earth. He says here to the son, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. He must mean here the wicked. The wicked who in chapter 1-4 were like chaff, right? The chaff that are driven away by the wind. In chapter 2-9, the wicked are like pieces of a potter's vessel. There's little pieces that are pictured in Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, aren't they? In chapter 1, chaff is as nothing. And then you think about what's the worth and importance of the shattered pottery pieces that are just laying there and are no longer the substance of the pot. Here you have in verse 9, the triumph of the Son of David, Son of God, who is the Lord Jesus Himself. The wicked are like chaff, like pieces of a vessel broken by the iron rod. The book of Revelation helps us see this. In Revelation 12, in verse 5, this apocalyptic picture is given about the birth of Jesus. Listen carefully here. She gave birth to a male child who's to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. I wonder where Revelation 12 is getting that idea. Psalm 2, that's where. A declaration that the one who has been born as the promised seed of the woman is son of David, son of God, ruler of all nations. He should be worshipped and exalted And not opposed with such vanity. In Revelation 19 that I read to you earlier at the beginning of our time this morning. 
at the call to worship. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which he is to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Where does Revelation 19.15 get this? Imagery from Psalm 2. Then the believer is given some encouragement in the church of Thyatira letter. In Revelation 2 and 3, seven letters to the churches. Let me quote from the church of Thyatira in Revelation 2.26. The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, Jesus says, to him I'll give authority over the nations and he'll rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself received authority from my Father. In other words, the victory of Christ becomes the victory of his people. It says here in Revelation 2, by the words of Jesus reported there in the church letter to Thyatira, the one who conquers and keeps my works, I'll give him authority over the nations and he'll rule them with a rod of iron. Wait wait a second, is it Christ who rules or is it his people who rule? Friend, the Revelation uh, text says, we shall reign with him. We shall reign with him as kings and queens of creation. Faithful and restored image bearers, glorified in his presence without end. And what Revelation 2 is holding out are the corporate implications for the people of God that Psalm 2 has. Christ reigns, so in him and with him we shall reign. Christ is victorious, vindicated, and triumphant. So therefore in union with him we shall be vindicated and reign with him. So what should be a takeaway for a reader of Psalm 2? We've looked at several of these things already that we can tie together with the closing warning of Psalm 2. The warning in verses 10 to 12 is given with a now therefore, so that if we're reading Psalm 2 rightly, here's an implication, a conclusion we can draw that would make total sense. If we're reading it rightly, then we would be able to say here, what makes sense? Therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling, kiss the sun lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled, blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's what we can conclude as the major takeaway from the Psalms. He doesn't end the Psalm with verse 9 and then say, you guys just sort of make of this what you will. He says, here's what you should get from this. You should pursue wisdom. Now we know from the Psalms and the Proverbs and other wisdom books that wisdom is found by knowing and following the words of God revealed. The blessed man in Psalm 1 delights in the words of God. What What should these peoples and the nations do? They should be like the blessed man. They should delight in the words of God so that they would be wise. So they would abandon folly and rebellion. And they would pursue rightful knowledge of Yahweh and walk faithfully with Him. They should be wise. Therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. We have here finding wisdom through the proper fear of the Lord. They might not consider themselves in any position needing a warning, but they are nevertheless in such a position. Be warned, O rulers of the earth, be wise. What might that look like? Here's verse 11. I think verse 11 helps us see a bit more of what growing wisely, growing in wisdom and being warned would look like. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. If they are wise and if they are heeding this warning, what will they do? 
Their response will be to serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. And then verse 12, I think, continues the same thing. But think for a moment about verse 11's language, serve the Lord with fear. They think of the words of God as chains and cords. Let's cast them off, they say in verse 3. No, 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 no. Let us delight in the words of God, which direct us in the path of life and freedom. Not which shackle us and bind us, but rather free us from the enslavement to sin. Oh, we need to be wise. And in growing wise, we will see sin for what it is and the words of God for what they are. Serve the Lord with fear. A proper fear of the Lord. They don't have a proper fear of the Lord. How do we know that? Because in chapter 2, 1 and verse 2, they rage and plot and set themselves and take counsel together against his anointed. That's stupid. That makes no sense. That's absolutely in vain. What an empty pursuit and strategy. He says here, serve the Lord. That means don't oppose him. Don't rise up to resist him. Submit to him. Rejoice with trembling. See, you might think rejecting the Lord is going to be the key to your joy and life's happiness and satisfaction. It is not. There is joy in knowing and following the Lord, delighting in His words, rejoicing with trembling. Kings rejoicing with trembling and serving the Lord with fear. Rejoicing with trembling, that's not a posture of haughtiness. You know what that's a posture of? Humility. Chapter 2, 1 to 3 doesn't sound very humble because it isn't. They're very haughty, very self-exalting and presumptuous. The psalm ends with calling them to do differently. Come before the Lord, submit to the Lord, rejoice before Him with trembling. He will not reject them. He will receive all who come to Him. No matter what the mightiest king from a worldly perspective seems to be, the Lord will receive that one who will come. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. The anger here is a righteous indignation. Not a flash in the pan anger. We know the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in love. But when the time of judgment has come, his anger is kindled quickly. You will perish in the way, he says, for his wrath is quickly kindled. The psalm extends a summons to come and love the Lord, delight in his words, walk in the path of life. That's amazing. Because we don't deserve that. We have all sinned and gone astray. Apart from the grace of God, we recognize the guilt and shame that is connected to our sin. And here the Lord is calling us to come before Him that we might rejoice. Because this is a welcome by the hand and ways of God into life and blessing. To serve and know the Lord. To serve the Lord and not sin. To confess Christ as Lord instead of living as we are the moral autonomous God of our own lives. These rulers are said to no longer here exalt yourselves. But see the foolishness of your sin. Come low before the Lord. Recognize your need of deliverance and He will receive you. Coming before the Lord with rejoicing and trembling. Coming before the Lord with service involves rightly understanding the one who is Lord. Responding here in verse 12, the language is given, kiss the son lest he be angry. To kiss the son is a picture of allegiance and submission in the ancient world. This is not just a, 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 some polite greeting. This is not somebody like in the ancient world who might kiss the cheek of another because you know, they haven't seen each other in a long time. 
To kiss the son here is a picture of allegiance, submission. It is to recognize the role the son occupies. He reigns as king, installed on Zion, my holy hill, God says. The nations shall become his heritage and the ends of the earth his possession. So come to the son. It means that they must understand something of the worth and majesty of the son. But the opposite here is to reject the son. To refuse allegiance to the son. To say, I could follow the son, I will go this way instead. To rebel against the one who is holy and just is to rebel from the offer of life and blessing in knowing God. What could the alternative be but to perish? What could the alternative be? He says, lest he be angry and you perish. So to refuse to submit to the Lord is to be upon a path that will be perishing. The perishing here is a picture of spiritual condemnation of the wicked. It results from righteous indignation and wrath. So the command to us among the nations today is to kiss the sun. There is a bad example of this in the Bible. In Mark 14, we read about Judas Iscariot. In Mark 14, 44, we're told that the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And then when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. But the actions of Judas did not show reverence for Christ. Judas's kiss was one of deception, one of rejection. Judas's kiss could not ultimately hide what was in Judas's heart and known by God. The Son is holy, worthy, righteous, sovereign and exalted, gracious and supreme, loving and merciful, long-suffering and life-giving, full of blessing and glory. Why would you reject Him? You do not have to perish in your sins. Let me tell you some good news today. There is salvation from sin in the Lord Jesus who died on the cross to bear judgment for your sin, rose in victory on the third day, and reigns forever as the king over the nations because of what the end of the psalm says. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The end of this psalm points us to the son. The one earlier who was the Messiah, the anointed one of verse 2, who's the king installed on the hill of Zion in verse 6, the one declared, you are my son, the son of God in verse 7, who would receive the nations in verses 8 and 9, and the one we are called to submit to and love, to confess as Lord and be his disciple. That's what verse 12 is telling us. But not just mere outward actions like Judas. That's not going to fool anybody for very long. But to kiss the son Because of the heart that loves Christ. Who is himself altogether lovely, life-giving and merciful. The one who comes to Christ as Lord. You know what they see Christ as? They see Christ as their refuge. Blessed are all who take their refuge in him. And you will not go to Christ. Unless you are convinced he is the refuge you need. The Bible calls you today to recognize your need for the refuge whose name is Jesus. Let's stand together as we pray.